You are listening to Preaching and Teaching on the Man of God Network of Podcasts. This resource combines expositional sermons and lectures from the classroom of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary to help equip listeners for the work of the ministry. Last week we did a lecture on justification, and this week uh, it's it's impossible, well it's not impossible, but it wouldn't be a very good idea to talk about the doctrine of justification without uh, discussing what's called the new perspective. And so this whole lecture is given to the gospel and the new perspective on Paul as it is called. It's going to consist of two parts an introduction, which is a survey of the new perspective, and then an exposition, which is an evaluation of its primary tenets in light of a pivotal biblical statement of justification by faith alone, and what one could argue is the pivotal biblical statement. And so this is kind of an excursus, but a necessary excursus because of the prevalence and popularity of the new perspective on Paul in not just liberal seminaries, but many conservative seminaries in our day. So the first thing we want to talk about by way of an introduction is the leading sources of the new perspective. Then we'll talk about the primary tenets of it. Leading sources, and to talk about this, um, though you might go back a little bit further, uh, you go back at least to E.P. Sanders, and his book entitled Paul and Palestinian Judaism. This is a lengthy survey of ancient Jewish literature uh, in which he expounds what he calls covenantal gnomism, which is the idea that God made a covenant with Israel freely, you could say graciously, but the condition of that covenant was that Israel should keep the law and, uh, and that this is uh, what the Old Testament teaches as it's reflected in ancient Jewish literature. Sanders, contrary to Protestant interpretation, said the Second Temple Judaism was not a religion of works righteousness. If the Jews were not trying to be justified by keeping the law, then one has to ask, however, what was the point of Paul's insistent argument against the works of the law? Uh, and uh, that, uh, that issue is going to come back up, but let's go on to James D.G. Dunn, one of my professors at Trinity Ministerial Academy many years ago, went on after he'd finished, um, after his time there to study under James Dunn. It's actually Dunn that coined the phrase, new perspective. Uh, He believed that Sanders had proven that Judaism at the time of Paul did not teach salvation by law-keeping. He agrees that the Reformation understanding of Paul is simply wrong, and uh, the Reformation understanding of the works of the law is wrong as well. He argues the works of the law uh, in Paul did not refer to all works of the law, but simply to circumcision, keeping the religious calendar, and observing the dietary laws. These were the badges or boundary markers of Judaism, 
And it's of these that uh, the works of the law uh, is, is said in the New Testament, not of all works of the law, including the works of the moral law of God. He asserts that Paul's target was religious practices that differentiated Jews from Gentiles. And so the great problem here was not the idea of of a religion of merit, but of uh, a religion of, let's say, discrimination, uh, because he asserts that uh, the Jews prided themselves on their distinction uh, from the Jews based on these badges or boundary markers of the law. And so Paul's target in speaking of the works of the law were those things that differentiated Jews from Gentiles. The problem that Paul was addressing then was not so much legalism as nationalism or or ethnic prejudice. He has no place, uh, Dunn does, for righteousness imputed to the believer make righteous and declare righteous and justification are, he says, a false dichotomy. Now, Don is still pretty far out there for those who think of themselves as conservative evangelicals, but the next man is actually presents himself and is widely considered to be a conservative evangelical of some kind, and his name is N.T. Wright. He is the most influential advocate of the new, new perspective on Paul among evangelicals. And there are two reasons for this. First, Wright styles himself as an evangelical and has defended the historicity of Christ and his resurrection. And he has ability to write and speak at a popular level. I actually heard Wright speak once in an Evangelical Theological Society meeting, or a meeting associated with that anyway, and uh, he was speaking on biblical eschatology, and the fact of the matter is I agreed with every word he said, uh, which was rather shocking uh, to me because of my uh, previous understanding and uh, I guess you could say prejudice against N.T. Wright. But he wasn't talking about issues with which I would disagree. He was talking about the necessity of understanding biblical eschatology in an earthy way that accommodated and incorporated the resurrection as central to Christian eschatology. And what he said was very, very good that day. But what he says in this book is not very, very good. It's very, very bad. He wrote a brief popular treatment of the new perspective entitled what St. Paul really said. And this is a popular uh, level treatment of the new perspective. What does he say in this book? Well, he agrees with Sanders' interpretation of Second Temple Judaism as a religion of grace. He agrees with Dunn regarding the works of the law being the boundary marker or badges of Judaism as it distinguished itself from Gentiles. He argues that the traditional definition of justification is wrong, and he writes that what Paul means by justification is not how you become a Christian as much as how you can tell who is a member of the covenant family. He argues that the righteousness of God is to be understood as covenant 
faithfulness. It's God's covenant faithfulness. Now, at first glance, in some respects, that might not seem so bad, but it's where he takes that idea that becomes really problematic. Romans 3, 21 and 22 then teach this, the covenant faithfulness of God apart from the law is revealed, even the covenant faithfulness of God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. That would be a typical new perspective way of translating that verse. Or 2 Corinthians 5, 21, uh, where, where it says that we might become the righteousness of God in him, refers to Paul's missionary band as the living embodiment of God's covenant faithfulness and does not refer to the imputation of righteousness at all to us. Wright denies the imputation of the righteousness of Christ. These are his exact words. It makes no sense whatever to say that the judge imputes, imparts, bequeaths, or conveys or otherwise transfers his righteousness to either the plaintiff or the defendant. Righteousness is not an object, a substance, or a gas which can be passed across the courtroom. Well, that's right at his most popular and, uh, from our perspective, most ugly. But that's what he said. So uh, the whole notion of imputation of righteousness is wrong. Um, and that raises, of course, many questions for conservative and confessional evangelicals. <clears throat> he teaches that faith is the basis of our justification. Justification presupposes, he says, the work of the Spirit. It takes place on the basis of faith, he says. Why should faith be the reason for God's declaration that the believer is in the right? The answer is that Paul understands faith to be the true fulfilling of the law. Now, uh, perhaps already some alarm bells are going off in your mind. If they are, they should be. <clears throat> faith and obedience, he says, belong exactly together, very often faith itself could properly be translated faithfulness. Faithfulness. Now, what are the primary tenets, then, of the new perspective as it comes into evangelicalism through Wright and from Dunn and Sanders? Well, the first uh, a tenet was that first century Judaism was a religion of grace. The problem which Paul's doctrine of justification addresses, here's the second tenet, is Jewish exclusivism, not how can a sinner be right with God. Third, works of the law in Paul's epistles refer primarily to Jewish boundary markers, circumcision, dietary laws, Sabbath-keeping. Righteousness terminology refers either to covenant faithfulness or to covenant membership. 
Fifthly, faith, because it is the true fulfilling of the law, and faithfulness is the badge of covenant membership on the basis of which we are declared to be covenant members. And sixthly, justification has nothing to do with the righteousness of Christ being imputed to believing sinners. Now, those are the primary uh, tenets, then, of the new perspective when it comes to the whole subject, especially of justification. Now, three of these tenets, especially, will be exposed to the light of Scripture. One, first century Judaism was a religion of grace. Two, works in the law of the law in Paul's epistles refer primarily to Jewish boundary markers. And three, faith or faithfulness, because it is the true fulfilling of the law, is the badge of covenant membership on the basis of which we are justified. I'm going to focus on those three tenets of this um, new perspective. Now, the first thing I need to say is that the new perspective takes substantially the same exegetical position that Rome took against the Reformers. Rome claimed that the works of the law against Paul, against which Paul declaimed so vehemently, were merely the works of the ceremonial law that actually the works of fulfilling the moral law was a part of the basis for justification. And so they made this, uh, they understood the works of the law against which Paul so vehemently uh, taught with regard to justification as they understood it as the works of the ceremonial law or these Jewish bounty markers of which the New Perspective speaks. The New Perspective claims that the works of the law are the Jewish identity markers, the dietary laws, circumcision, and the Sabbath, the works of the ceremonial law. Now, I want to come then and look at the pivotal biblical passage that uh, I think is really important, and it's pivotal both for them, because they quote it so often, and I think it should be pivotal in our response to the new perspective. In Romans 4.3, Paul appeals to Genesis 15.6. If you haven't turned there already, please turn there in your Bibles. Genesis 15.6. I'm sorry, and and along with Genesis 15.6, I want you to turn to Romans 4.3. Here, uh, Paul alludes to Genesis 15, 6, and he says, For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, this passage is quoted several times in the New Testament. Uh, 
And uh, especially, I mean, Genesis 15, 6, in different contexts with regard to the uh, subject of justification, I believe James quotes it in James 2, and I think it may be quoted in one other place as well. Now, this passage then is clearly foundational of the Bible for the doctrine of justification by faith alone, and a proper understanding of it is crucial. Now, <clears throat> Paul's use of Genesis 15:6 may be understood by contrasting it with a common approach of his Jewish contemporaries. And we want to consider this under two headings. We'll look at the Jewish approach to this passage and then the apostolic alternative uh, interpretation of it. Now, I want to say before I go on which, uh, with, with this whole subject and calling it the Jewish approach, that of course not all Jews held the Jewish approach, but an important stream of Jewish interpretation assumed that Abraham's faith was considered righteousness because it actually was righteousness. Faith is credited as righteousness because by faith, Abraham obeyed the law. And it was especially with regard to their view of Abraham that this legalistic strain in the Judaism of Paul's day showed up. Now, I'm going to forever be in the debt of, of of a seminar I had during my PhD studies at Southern, in which uh, we were doing um, the New Testament use of the Old Testament, and especially in Romans, and, and Mark Seifried assigned us a paper, we had to choose uh, an Old Testament text that was cited in Romans and study uh, the uh, way the Jews and the Jewish Second Temple Judaism, as it's called, the Judaism just preceding the advent of Christ, how they interpreted that passage. And having done that study and looked up all the Jewish documents that are related to this, I became convinced that the notion that the Second Temple Judaism was a religion of grace was simply flatly wrong. And now I'm going to give you the quotations which I think prove that. <clears throat> Here is Aboth 5.3 in the Babylonian Talmud. With ten trials was Abraham our father proved, and he stood firm in them all to make known how great was the love of Abraham our father, peace be upon him. Now, the emphasis here is, of course, on, is on Abraham's faithfulness and righteousness in his service to God. Genesis Rabbah, Parasha 44, on Genesis 15.1, oh, coarsely related, of course, to Genesis 15.6, interprets it this way. Another matter, his way is perfect, 2 Samuel 22.31, refers the rabbi said, to Abraham, for it's written in this regard, you found Abraham's way faithful before you. And that's a citation of Nehemiah 9.8. Of course, you may wonder that they apply his way is perfect to Abraham, and if you investigate 2 Samuel 22.31, you may wonder even more how the rabbi could do that. Another text that's relevant here is Genesis Rabbah, 
Parasha 44, who had second thoughts? Abraham did. He said before the Holy One, blessed be he, Lord of the ages, you made a covenant with Noah that you would not wipe out his children. I went and acquired a treasure of religious deeds and good deeds greater than his. So the covenant made with me has set aside the covenant made with him. Now is it possible that someone else will come along and accumulate religious deeds and good deeds greater than mine and so set aside the covenant that was made with me on account of the covenant made with him? But Second Temple Judaism was a religion of grace, right? Jubilees 11, verses 15 to 17. And in the seventh year of that week, she bore a son for him, and he called him Abram. And the lad began understanding the straying of the land, that everyone went astray after graven images and after pollution. And he was two weeks of years old, 14 years old. And he separated from his father that he might not worship the idols with him. And he began to pray to the Creator of all so that he might save him from the straying of the sons of men, and so that his portion might not fall into straying after the pollution and scorn. Well, here, here Abraham is presented as this religious prodigy who, even at 14 years of age, uh, began to uh, forsake the idols of his household and follow the true God. You say, boy, I don't remember the Bible says that. It doesn't say that. In fact, as we're going to see, it says exactly the opposite. <clears throat> but that was the Jewish interpretation, the tradition. Jubilees 17, verses 17 and 18. And the Lord knew that Abraham was faithful in all his afflictions, for he had tried him through his country and with famine, and had tried him with the wealth of kings, and had tried him again through his wife when she was torn from him, and with circumcision, and had tried him through Ush Ishmael and Hagar, his maidservant, when he set them away. And in everything wherein he had tried him, he was found faithful, and his soul was not impatient, and he was not slow to act, for he was faithful and a lover of the Lord. No. That's their interpretation of the account of Abraham in the book of Genesis. Jubilees 23.10 For Abraham was perfect in all of his actions with the Lord and was pleasing through righteousness all the days of his life. Jubilees 24.11 And the nations of the earth will bless themselves by your seed because your father Abram obeyed me and observed my restrictions and my commandments and my laws and the ordinances and my covenant. And then Sirach 44, verses 19 to 22. Abraham was the great father of a multitude of nations, and no one has been found like him in glory. He kept the law of the Most High and was taken into covenant with him. He established the covenant in his flesh, and when he was tested, he was found faithful. Therefore the Lord assured him by an oath that the nations would be blessed through his posterity, that he would multiply him like the dust of the earth, and exalt his posterity like the stars, and cause them to inherit from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. 
To Isaac also he gave the same assurance for the sake of Abraham his father. So what are all these covenants with the patriarchs? They are the result of Abraham's good works. <clears throat> First Maccabees 2.52 Was not Abraham found faithful when tested, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness? Odes 12.8 You therefore, Lord God of the righteous, men, righteous ones, did not appoint repentance to the righteous ones, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the ones who did not sin. But you appointed repentance to me, the sinner. Now these are some of the statements that are made with regard to Abraham, and especially the language of Genesis 15, 6, and Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, the strain of Judaism represented in such quotations took Genesis 15, 6 as descriptive. The crediting there, the imputation there, was a descriptive crediting, a descriptive imputation. Abraham was credited as righteous because he was righteous. This is the way that the language is taken and the assumption of all the Jewish quotations I've given you from the period of Second Temple Judaism. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Preaching and Teaching, brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. CBTS is a confessional Reformed Baptist seminary which provides affordable online theological education to help the church in its calling to train faithful men for the gospel ministry. To learn more, visit cbtseminary.org.